the tokens change and go through multiple chains, you see activity and value locked in all of these chains. But what all of that was generated from a small deposit that uh, kind of gets multiplied as it gets repeated and reused and rehypothecated through several channels. So then you get to a situation where you can claim that there is a lot of money in your system which all of that was created by a small initial input and, and reuse and repetition of that, uh, that exchange. Okay, welcome everyone to another BitGuide session <laughs> today we want to talk about the topic of rehypothecation and its effects on bitcoin i want to welcome everyone we are streaming this into youtube we're streaming this into clubhouse so uh, and also on twitter of course if you want to join us if you want to see us if you want to ask us questions please feel free to join our uh youtube uh, chat we uh, take questions from there and i think uh, the discussion we had earlier in the previous room which was the uh, persian room was what qu was quite interesting with with sina and we want to continue that in the english room so uh maybe why don't we start with the current situation a little bit just to just to give uh some uh, sort of update about the markets what's happening <clears throat> right now i don't think anyone can right now start talking about normal stuff before talking about the current current circumstances and macro environment in the market Sina, what do you think yeah so um crazy crazy market i i feel bad for traders whatever you do uh suddenly you you, you see this news that changes the whole thing like uh, you know, there is a new, there is there's some news about uh, Ukraine and Russia agreeing to some sort of uh, deal, and then that kind of pushes all the markets up. Then suddenly you hear something else that crushes all the hopes. Or similar thing with oil, right? So uh, there was a time like uh, last week that everyone was like, "Yeah, oil is extremely bullish and it's going to go up." Uh, uh, it's going to go to the moon and uh, a lot of people jumped on the bandwagon and then it came back down it's it's very very volatile so the thing is like people kind of fail to understand that different analyses realize uh, in different time frames so for example when you have a, a long-term analysis of something's price like oil um, in the short term that can that can actually uh, mean nothing so price can go up or down you have to wait for the thesis to realize. But if you go based on a long-term thesis, but you actually have a short-term plan, then that's the recipe for disaster. And I wouldn't be surprised for a lot of people to get chopped out in this market. So yeah, basically what, uh, what makes a lot of sense is to build your conviction on something and make sure your thesis is uh, strong or whatever asset that you like, and then stay with it for the long run use all kinds of you know drawdowns and volatility to your advantage rather than trying to react to what other people say or how the market seems to be moving generally in this kind of market you know historical price has nothing to do i mean the, the price in the past few days has nothing to do with 
what you should expect tomorrow. So I think it makes it even more difficult, not only because there is a war going on and we have all sorts of things happening in the macro environment. I think it's also very, very difficult because you have to basically uh, weigh in what the central banks will react towards what's happening, right? That's the, that's the question that everyone is struggling with. So right now, the, the pricing of commodities, of goods and services in any economy, I would even say, in the world is completely misrepresented. Like no one knows what's uh, representing what value because pricing has become distorted completely because the monetary system is breaking down and the world is in so much debt that we have to finance ourselves out of it. And the only way to get out of this is through money printing. And that's why we have basically forgotten what a free market even looks like. So trading becomes like impossible. Even investing in certain assets become very difficult because you might end up buying something and it completely turns uh, back towards what you thought it would happen because the monetary policy has changed wherever you bought that asset in or in which country you bought that asset in. I think that makes it even more complicated and even more difficult to, to even have a strategy to work in this environment. Yeah, I mean, the economy is complicated enough and then you have all this geopolitical risk. So even, even with those things, just <clears throat> predicting is very difficult and uh, you know, developing a thesis around something is hard. But now you have everything uh, being dependent on decisions of certain individuals and we have we have no idea what what goes on in their mind, so uh, it's an it's an impossible deal. I mean, if you get it right, it's by chance. So um, um, that's why I just forget about all of these short-term volatility. I only stack stack sets, and I I don't care about anything else that these guys do. There's only one mathematical certainty, and that you know the amount of debt that the U.S. has you know, it's impossible to deal with it without expansion of the money supply. Yeah. So without inflation, there's no way they can pay that debt back. So I don't care in the short term, they hike, they don't hike, whatever they do in the long run, there's only one thing that they can do. And that's to, to pump the system and pump Bitcoin as well. Yeah, that's for sure. We agree on that. Let's talk about reapplication. I think that's a very complicated topic for a lot of people because uh, there is a lot of things that these banks can do, especially because we still live in a fiat world. So why don't we start with the question, what it is and what the risks are? Do you want to uh, walk us through it? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, finance sometimes looks like, you know, that there's you know, still water, um, uh, water that's not moving at all. And then it gets dirty and underneath a lot of weird things are going on. And, and that's exactly how I feel about finance, finance operations. It's very opaque. A lot of things are get complicated. New terminology gets created all the time. And then at the end of the day, it's just paper and numbers moving around um, without yet real economic uh, activity happening. So, this is another case like this rehypothecation is a very you know weird sounding terminology but it's it's actually 
if you understand it, uh, the, the underlying meaning is simple. So let's start with an example. Imagine you go to a bank and, and basically you ask for a loan. They give you a loan, maybe $1,000, and then they are supposed to get from you some sort of assurance that you will pay back. So they have to have some sort of guarantee. Even though they're, they compute risk and all, uh, they, they look at your finances and everything, that only gives them the risk if you have good intentions. What if you have bad intentions and just don't want to pay, right? So they have to have some strong guarantee against that. And in that case, they might ask you to put up some kind of asset that you own, like a house or stocks or any other thing as collateral. And that gives discipline to the system. If I go bankrupt, bank doesn't go bankrupt. They have some guarantee to be paid back. And uh, uh, every negative event will be limited. If I screw up, if I manage my business bad and I can't repay my loans, no one else will be affected by that because I have previously accumulated capital as a form of some kind of asset that I used as collateral. And then that accumulated capital can get hurt, but nothing else will be impacted. Uh, but that's not how finance works because that there's limited money in doing good work and real, uh, real production for the economy. Instead, what they do is they say, all right, so we've made this deal with, uh, uh, with RK and then we've given RK cash. Now we have his house on our balance sheet. Um, okay, so should we leave that alone or maybe we can generate some more juicy uh, dollars off of that. So what they can do is use your house as collateral again to do something else. And basically you are combining the ideas of liability and assets. So the, your house wasn't the real asset of the bank, but bank pretends that it's their asset and then use that as collateral for something else. And if, for example, they use it to get a loan, they can, in effect, uh, be just a, a broker of a loan. Basically, they can loan you money that they don't have and they themselves loan from somebody else. And in that sense, they give your collateral, they give it to someone else, and then they give their cash and they give it to you. Basically, they're just converted themselves into this intermediary that's making money by simply moving things around. And so now what, what you see is now your house that was supposed to back your own loan is now backing two things. First of all, your credit worthiness and your ability to not to pay back. Plus the intermediary banks, uh, uh, credit worthiness because the second bank would seize that asset if the first bank goes bankrupt or doesn't pay back right so now the same asset that was that had one risk associated with it now it has two risks associated with it if you don't pay back the first bank seizes it if the first bank doesn't pay pay back the second bank seizes it so your assets uh, have two potential parties to seize it right and then in many cases, you have no idea that this is happening uh, because somewhere in those documents, you said you accepted this as part of the other 50 um, uh, lines on the contract. This doesn't end there as well. This, the second bank also lends that collateral to somewhere else and then it gets packaged into something else by a fourth bank. And then that package is then used as collateral somewhere else. There, there is some research that shows U.S. Treasuries are sometimes used for six to eight times in a chain as a, in a rehypothecation chain. So then any of those firms in the middle, if any of those go bankrupt, 
the asset is in in danger. So basically what it does is inflates risk without really generating any value for the economy out of that, right? So there's there's just inflation of risk and capturing extra revenues for your year end uh, bonus. See, yeah, that's 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 quite crazy that they can even do that, right? I mean, um the the reason why they can do it uh just to summarize is because of the trust they have from the market, right? Because uh, they have basically the trust to safe keep all the assets that is supposed to be there. But the question is then, is it going to be there when people want them, right? So maybe we go through some of uh, the examples that we have seen in the past. I would like to discuss gold because uh, from there, I would like to go towards Bitcoin and why that can also happen to Bitcoin, but it's not actually as bad uh, as it is or it could be on, on gold. Maybe we, we, we take it from there. So how could banks actually do that with gold? So basically, you know, there is, uh, I'd like to think of it as this grand formula that Wall Street has to make money. And how does that work? Basically, you know, real economic activity happens when you create goods or services and you sell it to someone else that values it, they give you something else. And this exchange make both parties happier. But production of real things is hard. But playing with uh, soft stuff like paper is easy. Um, so basically what Wall Street has discovered is they can take the same asset and reuse it multiple times. And you see this pattern uh, happening in, in many different areas. Basically, that's how the whole financial market works. Uh, let me give you a, an example. The fractional reserve banking itself is just following the same formula in a different way. They have figured out, okay, we don't need to have sufficient deposit for everyone. Just maybe 10% of that would be enough. Mm -hmm. And that works because, uh, you know, once you deposit something, uh, you you leave it there for some time, right? So not all not everyone uh, demands their deposits at the same time. So they said, okay, let's uh, use people's deposits in some other way and add some more risk on top of it, and we just hope that people don't want it all in the same time. And then of course that what happens is you, so so you increase your risk. Uh, and you increase your profits, which is really nice, and the, the support you get as management, you know, all of that is really sweet. But your risk is up. And then in theory, long term, adding risk should basically offset all the profits you receive. But but it doesn't happen like that because they have learned to socialize the risk and they add to this risk. Uh, you know, one bank takes excessive risk with shenanigans like that rehypothecation. They also link those risks to each other. So you can see a failure in one market can impact the other market. That other market has a lot of links to this third market over time it becomes extremely hard to track and measure and regulate so you see this big risk bubble forming everywhere and in that scenario the bank rightly and rationally sees okay it's either everything's going to be fine in which case we have a lot of good profits to enjoy or the downside is the whole system breaks and in that case also everyone goes down it's not just us and we can comfortably say that because it's going to be a social disaster government is going to come along and socialize the, the losses and bail us out in one way or another uh, either they directly bail the banks out or they figure out a legal way to not pay the depositors 
fully declare bankruptcy and kind of use some sort of uh, legal trick to not be liable. Uh, we saw the exact same thing happen in 2008, right? So uh, Lehman's actually, this is less uh, understood that Lehman's failure was a direct cause of uh, excessive rehabilitation. And, and then their failure cascaded into other places and then that caused caused uh, uh, people to lose uh, lo lose confidence in the financial system. And then that all of the assumptions that they had made in those sophisticated models uh, built by finance PhDs that nothing will go wrong and then we can operate on a fractional system and and then we can give a lot of loans to people that that are that are highly risky and can't pay back. Uh, basically, all of all of those models failed, and the system broke. But the managers, we had, we, you know, no one went to jail or the, the, the you know punished. Uh, the bonuses were paid. Uh, even if you know, in those cases, if they even if they hire a CEO or some high-ranking uh, executive, they have these uh, uh, golden parachutes and these nice exit packages. They will be more than happy to <laughs> to get those packages and yeah. go somewhere else stuff so basically the system is designed in a way that the risk is not paid by the same person who takes that risk and that's what basically rehypothecation does as well so somebody in that bank says uh, our case assets could be loaned out for something it could be used as collateral for some 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 other activity and then at that point the bank doesn't the bank is gambling on your money and your assets so you can be damn sure that they wouldn't be as careful with that risk decision as they would be with their own money. That makes sense. Okay. So uh, in a situation like that, how could we talk about what happened to gold, for example, as I mentioned, I would like to understand because see, I think what, what becomes very, very interesting is that actually the entire monetary system is a rehabification, right? The entire system is exactly that because as we moved out of the system that was basically still in existence or in place prior to August 15th, 1971, we basically completely eliminated any gold reserve uh, requirements and therefore banks all of a sudden became these giant monopolies that they could be because they could basically print more than they had in reserves. Now, why was that even possible? It was possible because the gold system that backed the whole system was invisible. No one could see the gold. So when they took it off, no one noticed it, right? So um, I think that's one of the biggest problems of gold and the reason why no one can notice this or no one actually notice i mean literally if you ask anyone no one could tell you what happened on that day and the reason is because no one could see it right so i think gold's failure to become a monetary asset that everyone can actually use is the birth of this reserve system, or actually it's not even a reserve system, a rehypification system that these banks use. Now, the, the problem becomes evident when the people or the market wants their assets back, 
right? If if people would go to the banks and they want to ask for their money, then the entire system collapses. But the problem is, instead of banks getting punished, the banks get bailed out by a, a central bank that can just print the money out of thin air. So gold's price, therefore, is highly manipulated because it can be. But if we would go into a Bitcoin standard where Bitcoin is the reserve asset that uh, let's say, I mean, this is just a theory, right? This is not, not something that I am claiming that is already happening or that can happen. But if we are in a Bitcoin standard world, all of a sudden you have something like gold, but instead of having something physical, you have something digital. And it's not only digital, it's even public. It's absolutely auditable. Everyone can see it. So if a bank is running a Bitcoin standard, or if there is a law that requires bank to have a reserve, then everyone can see everything because every address is visible. The coins are visible and no one can cheat. So even if we would go into another era, and this is just a wild prediction now, let's say the entire fiat system collapses and we run into a fractional reserve banking system again, but instead of gold, we would use something like Bitcoin. I think cheating and rehypothecating will be extremely difficult, possible, but over the long term, it's going to become impossible to keep because people all of a sudden can ask for their Bitcoin quite conveniently because it's just software, right? They can ask for their money back and they can see it and they can hold it on a very easy to uh, transport device, even their, their, their phone, right? So all of a sudden you have disrupted the entire system and rehypothecation is part of the past. Although the price right now of Bitcoin, a lot of people claim, is being pushed down because of the same methods. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. How sustainable is that? And how does that work? So, uh, so, so let's take this direction. You know, thinking about gold, uh, I wanted to add one last piece. Um, so, so going back to the idea that they, they have this grand formula of obtaining an asset and using it multiple times, pretending that it's it's more than it is, and then raking in all the all the trading profits. That's the same thing they did with gold. So they first had pegged the currency, the fiat currency, to gold. At the same time, they also wanted to spend more than they had, right? So then they expanded. They they broke that discipline. So you had more fiat paper than the actual gold. And then eventually the system broke when people started to realize this is happening and demanded the real gold, right? So this is another case where, you know, they have discovered that, you know, breaking this logical disciplinary link between things and pretending things are more than they are is, is beneficial. You know, governments do it, banks do it. Now they are and will do the same thing with Bitcoin. So basically, if I'm, an, if I'm a financial institution and I inject myself between you and your Bitcoin, you will not have the real deal. You will have the, the Bitcoin I, I'm telling you that you have. So let's say I'm, I'm kind of an exchange or uh, some other custodian that uh, you buy Bitcoin through me. Okay, so I, may, I can make it easier for you, can make it simpler for you. Uh, you maybe you're worried about custody and risks associated with it, so you trust me. Uh, and then 
in exchange for your money, I'm not giving you real Bitcoin. I'm giving you a number on a screen. And who knows if there is real Bitcoin behind that? The only way to know that is if there are either, you know, strong regulation that audits my company mm -hmm. or I provide some cryptographic proof that there is so much Bitcoin under my control on chain so everybody could see it. And that's something for the first time we can do, we can do with an asset. And so um, what they will for sure do and are currently doing is trying to recreate all the fraud that was possible in the traditional financial systems uh, in the crypto space. So, uh, you know, the simplest ones are, like I said, you know, uh, implement fractional reserve banking in, in exchanges. So, you know, keep less um, less reserve Bitcoin as, as you're promising to people. And then the benefits of that is you've created new Bitcoin out of, out of nowhere. And then you've mm. sold them and the benefit of that trade and you, you, you're getting a cut from each of those trades, right? So I can today create an exchange and sell people all kinds of uh, one out of the tens of thousands cryptos that are out there without having anything. I can just pretend that there's a number on the screen and people will, uh, some people at least will, will go will go along with it. All of that breaks only if people demand the real thing from me. Then I have to come clean and say, oh, looks like I don't have sufficient a real thing for the fake number that I'm putting on the screen. And you couldn't do that with anything. You couldn't do that with gold. Nobody wants to have gold bricks at their house. The cost of you know, security is just impossible to handle for a single person and transportation and all of the other problems associated with it, um, it makes you more likely to say, keep custody of my asset and I'll trust you. And then, then you have to come up with this regulation um, that will uh, make sure this trust isn't broken. And then what if regulation is not enough? Because you also see that, that the benefits of financial shenanigans are so much that the profits can find their way into, into uh, regulatory bodies and, 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 and Congress and all to kind of bend the rules a little bit here and there and create these loopholes and protect them such that the system can do what it wants to do. How does the crypto uh, community make, and I, when I say crypto, just to be clear, I'm not talking about Bitcoin. I'm talking about crypto. How does the cryptocurrency market basically get aligned with this idea? Is it in some way connected? Because they claim that everything they do is on a decentralized basis, right? They claim that it's exactly the opposite of the traditional system. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that and the similarities of, of, of the two. Absolutely. So they are generally ex-bankers and VCs and people who are well-versed in the traditional finance. And they find that there is this uh, a gold mine, no pun intended, that is not regulated because it claims to be decentralized and, and it's incorporated somewhere in a, in, a, in, a, in a regulatory haven or some kind of safe place. They find this new environment where they can repeat all the fraud that they were comfortable doing in the traditional system without the regulatory oversight and without the pesky you know, requirements of, of, of being honest. So then basically they don't have to be any, they don't have to come up with any kind of innovation. They just repeat what they did in the traditional system. The, the mm. thing that got us, got us the 2008 crash and then brought 
some more uh, regulatory pressure on them. Now they don't have that pressure in crypto. They can just do all of the things we talked about. So basically rehypothecation is done uh, to, to an excessive extent. You can see, especially in these DeFi platforms, and, and you know, there's a reason that financial games and loaning and lending are the number one uh, business in DeFi. And basically, uh, I mean, I mean, in the broader crypto, uh, because there you can create assets out of nothing, and, and basically you, uh, you know, use use things multiple times and and make profit several times on it. So you can see that. You know, there's this chain where you can get some money from and then you, you leave some collateral uh, on there. But then that chain uses your collateral uh, and deposits it somewhere else um, for, for another loan or another uh, transaction. That second <clears throat> chain deposits your collateral somewhere else. And you see the tokens change and go through multiple chains. You see activity and value locked in all of these chains, but, but all of that was generated from a small deposit that uh, kind of gets multiplied as it gets repeated and reused and rehypothecated through several channels. So then you get to a situation where you can claim that there is a lot of money in your system, which all of that was created by a small initial input and, and reuse and repetition of that, uh, that exchange. How can we relate this to Bitcoin? So, so I know that a lot of people claim that this the same thing is happening with Bitcoin. How can this happen to Bitcoin? If Bitcoin is scarce, as everyone is claiming, there's only 21 million. If a lot of people keep their coins on an exchange, isn't that uh, basically creating more Bitcoin? Absolutely, yeah. So you can be you can be confident that they uh, use the fractional reserve system so they want they will sell people more paper bitcoin than real bitcoin and what it does is uh, especially because we also want to look at the effect of the effect of this practice on the market what it does is it dampens demand so uh, imagine you know there was there were 100 people that wanted to buy one bitcoin each so there would be demand for 100 bitcoin on chain and then because the total Bitcoin is limited and it's fairly liquid, you would expect the price of Bitcoin to pump. But that's only if people are buying the real Bitcoin. If I, as, an, as a financial intermediary, inject myself in between and create paper Bitcoin without backing it sufficiently and equally with real Bitcoin. So, so I buy a small amount of Bitcoin, but I promise 100 people one, one uh, full Bitcoin. Now, all of those 100 people think they bought Bitcoin, so real demand is so so the real demand is satisfied. But uh, that demand doesn't end up into impacting the market for Bitcoin itself. It, it I have created paper fake asset and sold it to Bitcoin, and then I've dampened demand for the real thing. So these people basically think they have Bitcoin, but in practice they don't have it. They have a number on a screen. Once they want to exchange that number with real Bitcoin, if there's a minority that wants to do that, it's fine. But if uh, a lot of people want to do that at the same time, you will see that all of that, all of the huge amount of paper demand that's out there will have to be satisfied with a small number of actually available Bitcoin. And what that's going to do is make the price of Bitcoin skyrocket, 
because now suddenly all of these exchanges have to go buy real Bitcoin to pay people or declare bankruptcy. Or And what it's going to do is going to reward all the people who have actually kept their Bitcoin in their own custody because uh, the, this situation will be like a call option on blowing up of the whole crypto space. So that's why uh, all Bitcoiners say all the time is uh, withdraw your Bitcoin into your own wallet because they say if shit hits the fan, right? If the exchanges all of a sudden go bust, first of all, you won't be able to access your Bitcoin. And second of all, uh, if there is a bank run and or an exchange run in this case, if everyone is asking for their Bitcoin and... Uh, you are among a few that the bank or the exchange won't be able to pay because you're one of the last. So that's the first thing that's going to happen. And the second thing is that the price of real Bitcoin is going to skyrocket, right? So all of a sudden, the Bitcoin that you hold on your own wallet become much, much more valuable because uh, all the promises that all these exchanges made won't be basically affecting the price any longer. Um, I think that's a very, very fascinating thing to talk about because a lot of people think that this can go on indefinitely, which it cannot, especially with an asset like Bitcoin, because it is digital, because it is easy to, to custody yourself, unlike gold. You cannot do this for a very long time. You can do it on a short-term basis, but you cannot do it on a long-term basis. And I think along the way, once there is more regulations, and because I don't think we're going to get rid of exchanges or banks anytime soon. I think the market uh, needs them for the time being, and it's going to stay this way for the foreseeable future. But I think once there is more regulation, I think we could, we could end up in a situation where exchanges have to basically prove how much they have. And it's going to be very, very easy for everyone to see because for the first time, we're actually using an asset that has an open, completely transparent database that everyone can see how many coins every address is holding and it's going to be very easy to audit banks it's going to be very easy to control banks you know banks are going to basically compete with each other because the more they're transparent the more people will trust them and uh, they're going to compete and say hey listen we have more in reserves than the other bank you should come to us right we're more transparent we are very open about what we hold so you should better trust us and not others right that's also a game theory to go through, actually quite interesting to think about. Yeah, again, for the first time in history, we have we have an asset that you can really own. Most other things you can't really own. There's someone that allows you to own it. Like even if it's a physical house or something, you're subject to the whoever rules that uh, geography, right? So they can they can have some kind of regulations to separate you from your own asset. But with Bitcoin, you can really own it with mathematical certainty. And that's going to change the game. And basically what happens in the in, in the current financial world is they are telling me that trust us, we're going to manage things well. And we have models, we have PhDs in finance, and we have really, really intelligent people hired, and we're going to take care of everything for you. 
and then every once in a while the whole system blows up and and those running the system they don't get fired or changed and uh, uh without a doubt without fail everyday regular people will suffer bitcoin changes that bitcoin gives me full mathematical certainty that i really own the thing that i think i'm owning and that gets rid of all these intermediaries that want me to trust them. Basically, it's a change of mindset. It brings full discipline. And I don't want to trust on any kind of regulator or, or legal system that is supposed to uh, you know, uphold justice and check all the claims and con confirm everything with the law. And because we know law has loopholes and then there are a lot of ways you can go around it. And it ends up being insufficient for many cases. There's just so much discipline you can bring by anticipating all the potential conditions. I want. I don't want any of that. I want my money to be my money. That's it. I don't want anyone else to be playing games with it. It's quite fascinating to talk about this because um, I think a lot of people are confused about the foreseeable future, how this is going to unfold. And I think it's going to melt faces. You know, this is right now a very good time to buy Bitcoin. It's always a good time to buy Bitcoin, but it's especially a good time when uh, things are quiet. You know, it reminds me when, when Bitcoin was going sideways for at least three months um, uh, between $6,000 and $8,000. No one is talking about it. Everyone is quiet. Best time ever to, to actually get some exposure. And even if you're not comfortable with the volatility, you don't have to get yourself overexposed. You know, if you don't know a lot, you can buy a little bit and just get educated as the time goes. You know, you listen to our podcast, you listen to another podcast, you educate yourself, you read some books and over time you get more and more comfortable and you realize that everything else is just, it's just a Ponzi. Sorry to be so radical, but it's just true. It is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Remember just going back to, to, to when I said there, Wall Street has one formula that they replay all the time. That's the Ponzi game, exactly like you said. So they turn everything into this Ponzi where value, uh, fake value is created out of thin air. But, but yeah, going back to the, uh, this time being the good uh, opportunity to buy, you know, the best opportunities happen when you are right and everybody else is wrong. If you are right and everybody else is right as well, there's not a lot of you know gain for you because people have already positioned properly. Our advantage, actually, if if you look at it, you know the fact that most people in TradFi still still don't understand Bitcoin, and all these people who say Bitcoin is a Ponzi or it's going to fail or regulation or this and that or all these governments are going to crack down, all of these are good things because they prevent the the leeches that have filled their bags in the traditional system prevents them from coming into Bitcoin and buying it and making it so expensive that we can accumulate. We should actually embrace this quiet. And uh, basically, if you love somebody, tell them buy Bitcoin. But if you don't, tell them, tell them to avoid. So uh, what happens in most revolutionary investments or technologies in the world, again, Bitcoin is not just an investment. I want to avoid these terms, but sometimes they explain a, an aspect of Bitcoin. The most revolutionary technologies, the way they grow is they have this huge, boring, long time that, that makes a lot of people who, who have this linear thinking, trying to extrapolate past in the future, that this isn't going anywhere. If you look at Amazon, Amazon wasn't going anywhere for such a long time in the 2000s. And, and people were like, yeah, this isn't 
you know, the thesis isn't playing out. And, and they kind of, I don't know how many people sold it in 2008, nine, assuming that it's not going to move at all. And suddenly the change begins when you, you expect at least. Same thing happened with Tesla, you know, several years, it wasn't going anywhere. And suddenly it paid off because that's, the, you know, you're, you have a psychological game going on. Instead of trying to understand the underlying, they try to look at historical price and extrapolate it. And that's the biggest in a blind spot they have and and it's an opportunity for us to accumulate as much as we can before traditional folks figure it out this is all you know i'm having a lot of fun as soon as the you know the price starts moving fast then then you know pump and dumps and all the overnight experts and analysts will uh, will pop and this shit traditional coins. Price, exactly also also all kinds of shit coins you know, these TradFi folks will start putting out all these reports talking about it. Maybe a couple of years from now, again, in another accumulation phase, they're going to say, oh, yeah, Bitcoin isn't performing as expected. It's not proving to be that, that safe haven asset that everybody pitched. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Awesome. Well, I would say the last message we want to give everybody is buy Bitcoin. And most importantly, I think out of this session, I think the biggest lesson is to not only buy it, but also to custody it yourself. Because if you don't custody your own Bitcoin, you don't actually own that Bitcoin. And once things start to unfold, because there is nowhere else to go, because the entire fiat system is breaking down as we speak, there is going to be a massive run onto safe haven assets. And I don't want to say everyone is just going to buy Bitcoin and nothing else. That's, that's That would be misleading. I think there's going to be a transition period where a lot of people are going to run into scarce, pristine assets and everyone is going to select the most pristine asset. But over time, the most pristine asset is going to eat everything else, which is Bitcoin, right? So um, yeah, I think that's a very, very uh, great point to end the conversation, Sina. Thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, we did two sessions straight again. I love the discipline. Follow us on Twitter, follow us on YouTube, follow us on Clubhouse. We do these rooms every single week. We do them in Persian. We do them in English and we convert them into podcasts and we also publish them on Spotify and very, very soon it's going to be available on Apple podcast as well. Sina, any last words you have? Oh, regarding BitGuide. Sorry, I forgot. So our website is going to be coming out very, very soon. We are working on some amazing educational content or I should actually say courses. These are very curated courses that we have put a lot of time in for everyday people who don't have any understanding about Bitcoin, but also for advanced users who know what Bitcoin is and who are already using Bitcoin. Stay tuned for that. It's going to come out very, very soon. We're going to let you guys know. And Sina, any last words? Uh, so basically uh, what BitGuide is trying to offer is a really good first place to start. You know, we have spent years in the in the Bitcoin space and we've learned things in the painful way, step by step from this and that resource. And then we are trying to just pick the most important ones and bring them all in one place without all the noise, without all the extra, without all the distraction. So if someone is interested in understanding a topic, 
uh, take one of these courses and basically get a deep treatment of the topic to uh, save their time and give them the, the most amount of signal within a short amount of time. We don't, we never say this is going to be all you need to know. Obviously, that's that's not uh, how things work. Uh, Bitcoin, it will be the best place to start and, and a one-stop shop for building a strong foundation for Bitcoin. For sure. You're going to earn your master degree at BitGuide, the Open Bitcoin University. Absolutely. Wonderful. Sina, thank you so much for your time. And I'll see you next week. I'll see you next week. Take care.